Good morning, Frontline Church. Good morning, family. It's a privilege to be here with you online this morning, and it's a privilege to bring you the Word of God. I pray that you're all doing well, and I can't say it enough, but we really miss being with you and fellowshipping with you at our family. We miss seeing your faces, and even though this may feel like it is the new normal, I really believe that God will bring us through this, and we will be together again soon. Church may be a bit different going forward, at least for a while, because now we know that we're slowly coming out of lockdown, but we trust that the Lord has every little detail of our future in His control. He is sovereign over everything, so whatever comes our way, we will not stop trusting in His perfect plans. And we just rest in the fact that He's sovereign and perfect in nature. Let's pray together and commit this time to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Father God, we come to you today in the mighty name of Jesus. I pray that, Lord, who is ever listening to this message today, whether peace is flowing like a river or whether mighty waves are breaking over their heart, Lord, that you would manifest yourself in such power, such closeness, such nearness, and such magnificence, Lord, that every need would be touched with transforming, encouraging, life-giving, Christ-exalting power. And I pray, Lord, that as I undertake to present your, your word of truth today, Lord, that you would anoint my lips and those that are listening. So that the exchange today, the exchange in the word would be magnifying to Jesus Christ and strengthening to our face. Lord, let this word be purifying to your church and let it advance your mission in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So church, today I really want to speak to you about something that the Lord has been impressing on my heart over the past couple of weeks. When you go through something that you've never gone through before, namely this pandemic, you start to think differently. You start to prioritize things in your life and make sure you understand what's really important in life. What used to be important maybe is not that important anymore. And maybe you feel the same way. And a thought came into my mind this last week as I felt the need to shift certain things in my life and reprioritize certain things. And I thought to myself, how would I live today if I knew that tomorrow was my last day? How would I live? How would I speak? How would I behave in front of other people? How would I treat other people? What would I change if I knew that tomorrow was my last day? And I'm not saying the kind of thinking, you know, where you just go out and spend every last cent that you have and have the greatest celebration you can imagine. I'm talking about knowing that what you do today would be your legacy for eternity should you die tomorrow. What you do today would be what your family, your friends and, and people of influence would remember of you forever. I'm talking about knowing that what you do today would impact the day when you stand before the Lord and give an account for your life and what you've done in your life. And I know it's only a day, but what I'm trying to get at here is how will I live my life today if I know that Jesus is coming back tomorrow? And I really felt an urgency inside of me to preach to you today about the return of Christ and really what it means for us to be the bride of Christ with, that will be prepared and ready to magnify and marvel at Jesus when He returns. Whether it's tomorrow or another day in the future or, you know, you leave this world to go and be present with the Lord. 
Pastor Renal set an outstanding platform last week on a message on preparation, which he spoke about preparation, repentance, and where we need to put our focus on in this season. There were some great nuggets to take from that message, and I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't heard that message or seen our message on YouTube, please go back and listen to that. And on the back of that message, I want to try and paint a picture for you today of the importance of what it means to be ready for when the Lord returns. Because I believe that we're entering into a season where we really need to get into the meat of the Word. Light preaching and light teaching is just not going to cut it anymore. Motivational preaching and teaching is not, not going to count. It's not going to get us ready for what the Lord wants to do in this season. And so in my preaching today, I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture so that I can try and paint this, this picture for you. And also because my words mean very little in comparison to the Word of God on this subject and any other subject that I will preach. And so I want to ask you today to get ready to chew on this important word. And to start off, I want to show you a scripture right at the end of the Old Testament, the very last chapter. Malachi chapter 4 from verses 1 to 5 says the following. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Church, the Old Testament prophetic perspective looked at what you could call a range of mountains. The nearer and farther mountains in the range of God's events that he is bringing on this world. And for these prophets, the sequence and timing of these events was, was somewhat unclear. Because God allowed them to see and say many trustworthy things about those events. There's no denying that. But he didn't allow them to see that there were valleys between the mountains and how wide the valleys were. And so, for instance, the prophet didn't know that it would take about 400 years until Jesus came for the first time and fulfilled the first part of the prophecy in Malachi 4 that we just read, and that the full prophecy would only be fulfilled in completion when Jesus finally returns again. So when Jesus the Messiah arrived on the earth for the first time and wasn't burning like an oven and wasn't trampling down his enemies, but as the son of righteousness, it created great confusion amongst his followers and maybe even by some of our believers today. And it was confusing because in his coming, he's living, he's dying, he's rising and he's ascending. He achieved once and for all amazing and wonderful things for us. But the completion of that accomplishment in the saints and creation isn't come yet. And we don't know when it will. So the purchase, the ransom of all the elect, 
all those who would believe in all ages was completely and finally paid once and for all at the cross. Hebrews 9 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or he was obedient unto death and just before he died, he said, it is finished. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5, by one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. So in the first coming of the Messiah, the punishment for sin and the provision of righteousness was done. That payment and that perfection can never be improved or added to in any way. And if we are united to Jesus by faith in Him in, in this age before He comes, we can never be more, any more forgiven than we are now, and we can never be any more for justified than we are right now. And that's an amazing achievement considering the sin of man and the condition of, of man's heart. But Jesus did it, and He did it in a glorious way. And yet, it remains a great perplexity because even though we are saved, the Bible says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Though we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son, Colossians 1, we are yet to inherit the kingdom, Galatians 5. Even though we have been adopted into the family, Galatians 4, we await adoption as sons, Romans 8. Even though we have been perfected for all time, Hebrews 10, we are now being perfected, Galatians 3. Even though we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, if we live according to the flesh, if we live in sin, we will die, Romans 8. Even though we have become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, we await the resurrection of our bodies, Romans 8. And even though we have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, we see in a glass dimly, and when He appears, we will see Him like He is, and we will be like Him. And so can you see where the confusion may come in here? There are so many things that He has already done and established, but that work is still to be completed when He returns. So when it gradually dawned on these disciples that it's not going the way that they expected would, that it's not going the way that it expected, that it's probably going to turn out very badly for them, perhaps even painfully, not victoriously as they'd hoped it would. When they began to realize that and they realized that Jesus was going to go away, naturally they asked him, Lord, how long will you be gone for and when will you finish establishing the kingdom of God? And to their disappointment and perhaps our bewilderment, here's what Jesus said. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In His human nature, Jesus didn't know the time of His return, but He knew enough. And when His followers asked Him if the kingdom of God was near, in Luke chapter 19, He responded with a parable that began like this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He knew that much. He knew that he had to leave, but for how long he didn't. 
And church, this is a very important fact that we need to keep in mind when reading the New Testament. How far? How far is the return of Christ? Because when we read statements like, the end of all things is at hand, or behold, I am coming soon, or the Lord is at hand, or the coming of the Lord draws near, or behold, the judge is standing at the gate, if we read those statements as if the authors knew when Jesus was coming, we must read them. Because not even the Son knows. And to claim to know when the Son doesn't know is actually a sin. And you see, church, is not so much about when He's coming, it's are you ready when He comes? If Jesus were to come tomorrow, would you be ready to meet Him? In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus speaks about His coming, He says, when you see all these things, you know that He's near at the very gates. And church, when we hear these words in the Bible, these nearness words, it doesn't mean that he's on the way or that he's just around the corner or he's 50,000 kilometers away and we have a couple of weeks and months to get ourselves ready and prepared. You see, we're not meant to read it this way. You see, he's already at the gate. He's always been at the gate. He's not on the way from anywhere. He's at the gate just outside the dimension of time. So don't presume that you can stop being vigilant. Don't presume that you can stop being ready. Because listen to what Jesus says about the faithful and ready and wise servant. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think there's much ambiguity in that scripture right there. And you see, the point is not distance or time. It's nearness to the gates, spiritual vigilance, doing our job. Because Jesus says in verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Church, He's coming at an hour we do not expect, especially if you get drunk on the world and you lose all your spiritual sensitivities. And church, to our benefit, what keeps him just outside the gate is, is not distance or time, but sovereign purposes of grace, patience, mercy, and judgment. And church, I want you to take what I've said so far to you this morning, and I want you to use that as a foundation for what I want to paint a picture for you and share with you for the rest of the time that we share together. And I will attempt to unpack the meaning and relevance of the Jesus' return according to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to go into some detail. Let's read this together from verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Church, there's the situation that triggers everything else that Paul is going to say from verse 5 onwards. In all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, what sets the foundation for Paul's teaching here on the return of Christ is the persecution and the afflictions of the believers. In verse 4, Paul boasts about the churches amongst the other churches of God, about the steadfastness, the faith, and love of these believers in Thessalonica, in all their persecutions and afflictions that they are enduring. And when he adds afflictions to the word persecutions, he's actually enlarging the experience. He's making it a big, big deal. But having said that, there's nothing uncommon going on in Thessalonica as far as sufferings go. Because he spoke to them about this in, in 1 Thessalonians. He said, let, he said, let no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Which means that we are meant for this. Which means that this is part of God's design. He taught them this from the very beginning. Just like he did all the church in, in Acts 14 saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. He kept telling the churches. So what was happening in Thessalonica was nothing unusual. It was nothing uncommon. And church, this is why what Paul says about the return of Christ is so relevant for us. It relates to our persecutions and afflictions. Because we're Christians, it's normal. These are God-appointed sufferings for all believers, all churches, all times, some more, some less. But here's the fundamental thing Paul says about that to them in verse 5. He says that affliction, that persecution that you're enduring is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, it's a sign that God is dealing, He's judging, He's deciding and He's governing justly in your afflictions. Remember, He's a sovereign God. And he's not wronging anyone or doing anything inappropriate. 
So I guess the question is, how is God showing the rightness and justness of appointing such afflictions? How is it a right thing? How is it a good thing? And Paul says it very clearly in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. That's why. That's why it's a just thing. That's why it is a right thing. That God passes judgment, and that judgment is you get persecuted so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, and and please listen carefully, even though the reality of our justification by faith alone, on the basis of Jesus Christ alone, is how we are accepted and forgiven by God, adopted into His family and have access into the kingdom of God, the whole New Testament shows that God considers it just, righteous, and fitting to make the ungodly, justified ones godly in preparation for Christ's return. That's the crux of it. The whole New Testament is designed that way. And this is what I'm called to prepare you for as a pastor, that you are made worthy to meet Christ. My whole ministry, if nothing else, is to make you ready to meet Jesus, glorifying, magnifying, marveling at Him and and not ashamed. And let me assure you, that doesn't exempt me from being ready either. I have to talk, walk, and model what I preach. Church, I don't want you to miss this today. I know this may be a bit of a challenging word, but if you can just take hold of these these principles in the Scripture, I believe it will make you do life differently. That we would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And when it says worthy in this text, it doesn't mean that you are worth it or deserving of the kingdom. If you look at a study of the word worthy in the Bible, it means in keeping with or as befits. In other words, it's fitting. The same word was used in Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 where John the Baptist said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, is your life through your afflictions being made suited, shaped, prepared, appropriate, in sync with the glory that's coming? Or are you just overcome with worldliness, eating and drinking of things of this world? You see, what pleasure are you saturated with? Are you saturated with the pleasure of the Lord and His truth? Or are you saturated with pleasure with things with this world? You see, that's the point here. In verse 11, he turns it all into a prayer and highlights it again. It says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling. Church, there it is. This is the beginning and the end of the text. This is what it's about. This is what preaching is for. Whether it's on the return of Christ or anything else, we preach the Word of God to make sure that we are worthy of the calling that we have in Christ now, and the calling that we'll have at the end when we rise to meet Him in the air. That's what it's about. And so how does all of this make us worthy? By His divine power through affliction, purifying our faith, 
turning our determination and the desires of our hearts into actual works of love, weaning us off the love affair with the world and fitting us to glorify Jesus when he returns. So that, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him. And church, to make us a radically different kind of people. And so what these scriptures are telling us is that the reasons God's judgment in our afflictions is shown to be a righteous judgment, that it's a good thing, that it's a just thing, is because its purpose is to make us worthy of His appearing. And we have to look at it like this. I've got one life, one life. And what should I do? I've got to get ready to marvel. I have to get ready to glorify. I have to get ready to magnify. Because if you're not working on your heart, what are you going to do when He returns? What are you going to do when He comes back and, and when you meet Him? Church, we need to begin to understand our sufferings because if we get mad at God while we are being afflicted, we are completely out of touch with what we need. And I want to say this next part with much respect and, and reverence to the, to the Lord. Our affliction is God's infirmary or God's hospital to heal us from the disease of worldliness and to make us ready to marvel at Christ when He returns. You see, God wants to make you ready. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you a beautiful bride. And church, I know this is a bit of a hard pill to swallow. But there's more to the scripture. There's purpose behind all of this. There is design behind all of this. Let me show you. Paul says in verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So one of the reasons why it's right and it's just that you are experiencing afflictions in this life, especially from other people, is because they're not going to get away with it. They're not going to go unpunished. Those people who are slandering you, those people who are persecuting you for the sake of the gospel, those people who are throwing Christians into prison, kidnapping and beheading Christians are not going to go unpunished. There will be a balancing of the scales. Justice will be done. And church, it's important to know when I say justice will be done that this justice will only be served when, when Christ returns. Not in this life. This is important for you to know because the injustices that we experience in this life, maybe only some of it will be rectified before Jesus returns. Again, he's sovereign, so he'll decide, but don't count on it. Count on the eternal judgment of all things. Because if we don't take this approach in life, we will be tempted to take matters into our own hands and become vengeful. You know what? If you're carrying anger in your heart, if you're carrying hatred in your heart, if there's offense in your heart, let it go. Just lay it down. God will settle accounts. Be free from that stuff. Don't carry the, these burdens around with you your whole life. Put it into His capable hands. He will settle accounts and, and He's going to do it a lot better than we can, I can tell you. He's going to do it perfectly. So that's another reason why it's a righteous judgment that God ordains these afflictions. 
And finally, why it's a righteous judgment that God ordains these afflictions, verse 7, is to grant relief to you who are being afflicted. His judgment is righteous in our affliction because He has appointed relief. You see, their afflicting will be replayed with affliction, affliction, and your being afflicted will be repaid with relief. And I think that when we consider the overwhelming degree of suffering that the church has endured for over 2,000 years, I don't believe that we must think of this relief as merely the absence of earthly suffering. Because when Jesus spoke about his return, he said, enter into the joy of your master. So this relief is not something light, something just absent of of this world. It's gloriously absent of all pain and gloriously full of divine joy, giving us the capacity to enjoy him beyond anything than we could ever imagine. Remember, Jesus says to those who are enduring much hardship, Great is your reward in heaven. So when the relief comes, it will be beyond your imagination. And Paul says the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And you see, church, there is design to the righteous judgment of God. This is the design. Number one, to get you ready to... to with joy and capacity and holiness to marvel when Christ returns. Number two, those who are causing the body of Christ endless afflictions and persecution will not get away with it. They will not go unpunished. And number three, you will get relief at the last day. So don't think that God has neglected to write down all your sufferings so that they get the appropriate responses at the end of the age. Church, you may be thinking this morning after hearing this message, well, I don't really suffer that much affliction for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if I'm persecuted as a Christian. And there may be a number of reasons why you are thinking that way or you feel that way. Maybe you haven't identified what affliction really is. But if you're thinking like that, you can either use this message as a message of preparation Because I really believe that we're going into a season where we, if we make a stand for Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. Or you can use this message to make sure that you're not standing with one foot in the church and another foot in the world. And that you would prepare yourself now as if you were going to meet the Lord tomorrow. Church, that we would be ready to magnify, glorify, and marvel at Him when He returns and not ashamed. Church, he's at the gate, and he will come at a time where we may not anticipate it at all. Let's be a church, let's be a people that are ready and expectant to meet him, ready and expectant to meet our Lord Jesus, our Savior. And church, this morning, we're going to close in prayer, and I have the privilege to ask my daughter, Rachel, to come and close for us in prayer. She came and spoke to me this week and asked me if she could pray for the service this morning because her big sister did this this past week. And so I said to her, you know what, let's give it a go. Let's see how you feel. And she came to me a couple of days ago and she, she showed me this prayer that she had written. 
And I was so touched and, and blessed by what she had, had heard and written and just by what I mentioned briefly to her about what I'm speaking about today. So I want to call her to come up now and I'm trusting that she's going to bless you just as much as she blessed me and touch the, the, the Lord's heart this morning. Good morning, Frontline Church. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thank you for today. Father, I pray that we will start to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord, that we will not take this time for granted, but that we will draw closer to you and have intimacy with you. Father God, I pray that as my dad has brought the word today, I pray that it will transform cities and nations, mm. that people will take this word and use it in their daily lives, and that as they do this, you will talk to them and give them more knowledge of the word. Father, I pray that as we are in lockdown, I pray that we will use this time to study your word and prepare ourselves so that when we are finished with lockdown, we will be changed in a way that will, that will please you. Amen. Father God, I pray that 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 which says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, craven, cringing, and fawning fear, but of power, love, and a calm, well-balanced mind, and discipline and self-control will be our foundation during this time. I pray that evangelists and prophets will arise and that people will not be afraid, but they will be strong, courageous, and fearless. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank amen. you, Frontline Church. Amen, amen. Well, thank you, Church, for being with us online again this morning. We look forward to connecting again with you soon. Have a blessed Sunday further. And we just want to say again, we miss you. And we love you very much.